I remember, it was April 2015, Tacoma Falls College, and I'm on the top floor of Earl Hall, okay? This is my last semester of my senior year, and I was in uh, the last class necessary. Some of the other classes were, I had that semester, it was a pretty light load my last semester, um, but some of the, the other classes were just like random electives, Bible classes, stuff I, I didn't need for graduation, just superfluous stuff that was wonderful. But this was the last class that I needed uh, for graduation, and so I am locked in. Probably one of the hardest classes I've ever taken, uh, just because the professor loved to uh, fact-check. Like, it was all fact-based, but the class was one of my favorite classes, and it's American Church History with Dr. David Jolovic. Everyone called him Dr. J. Um, And so I'm sitting in class, and we're in uh, we're in the 1500s talking about the root, roots of Anabaptism, okay? So Anabaptism is basically this offshoot in the 1500s of the Reformation that said uh, the Catholic Church was all in on uh, pedobaptism or infant baptism, um, I think that is a, it's not where I fall on my beliefs and, and practices, but I don't think it's an inherently evil or sinful or wrong thing. Um, but the Anabaptists said, no, we believe firmly in the uh, believer's baptism, basically the baptism as a sign of the inward work that God has done. And so we're going to reform and leave the Catholic Church so that we can practice in the way that we see fit. Basically, uh, we don't want to baptize people as infants. We want to baptize them when they're confessing repentant believers. Uh, and this is where the term Anabaptist comes from. So onto the scene, late 1500s, comes this guy named Dirk Willems. Now, Dirk Willems was from uh, the Netherlands, and the Anabaptists were from Switzerland. And so uh, Dirk Willems becomes uh, associated with the Anabaptists and believes it so strongly that he says, I want to, I was baptized as an infant, but I want to engage in a believer's baptism. I want my confession uh, on the work of Jesus to then lead me into this confession of baptism that we see played out. And so he gets rebaptized, and uh, in doing so, basically renounces the entire system of Catholicism and says, uh, I don't think what you're doing is right. We see that in the Reformation in the 1500s anyways, but I don't think what you're doing is right, and so I'm going to uh, follow uh, what I believe the Bible is, to be, is saying, which is baptism comes on repentance. And uh, the Catholic Church, who had their tentacles into every power structure that be, um, was the presiding force of the day and said, okay, well, if you're going to, this is how seriously they took things, if you're going to be baptized as an adult, basically saying what we believe is wrong and, uh, and you're right, we're going to put you in jail. So Dirk Willems believes so strongly that a believer's baptism is the right practice of following Jesus that he gets put in jail. (laughs) Now, 
the church has a really long history of treating people who uh, raise theological propositions and questions really, really poorly. Uh, we see this with Galileo, who is like, hey, maybe the, the world, everything doesn't revolve around the earth, and the church is like, you're a heretic, and uh, go on house arrest and all this stuff. And this is what happens with Dirk Willems. And so he's in jail because he believes so strongly in the Anabaptist faith. Uh, and, and he says, this just isn't right, and so I'm going to plot my daring escape from jail. So it's the middle of winter. He's in this, uh, what used to be a palace that's been transformed into a, uh, a jail, basically, and around the palace is this large moat, <coughs> and he collects these rags and he ties them together. It's like something from a movie. And he lets himself down uh, out of his window uh, with this rag rope that he's created. And he starts to sprint across the ice uh, that's frozen over on the moat. Now, <coughs> his captors, employed by the Catholic Church, start taking off after him. And uh, he, he basically gets halfway across the moat. I don't know how big it is, but he gets halfway across. And he has been starving in jail. And so he's light. He's nimble. The ice is no problem for him. The guards, that's not the case for. A little bit larger. Have not been starving by any means. And so the guard gets halfway across and plummets straight through the ice into the frozen water uh, underneath. He begins panicking. Now, in this moment, Dirk Willems has a decision to make. He believes so strongly in the Anabaptist faith in their rejection of infant baptism and say, no, we think this is the right way to practice. There's no reason he should have been in jail for that. But it's in this moment, Dirk Willems decides to turn around and rescue his pursuer. He scoops him up, he, he, gets, he starts to take off his clothes, he gets him warmed up, and uh, you'd think with this show of goodwill that uh, Dirk Williams would get to make an escape. Now, because he went back to save his, uh, his uh, pursuer, he gets recaptured, re-put in jail, and eventually burned at the stake, and uh, I... I just to show how bad it was. The particular day that Dirk Willems gets burned at the stake is a really, really windy day. And if, if you're trying to practice this type of execution, the goal, excuse me for being gruesome, the goal is for the fire to travel up. Um, so they get tied at the stake. It travels to pull up and, and burns you alive. Uh, the particular day that Dirk was executed um, was really, really windy, which means the fire doesn't travel up because it's getting blown to the side. And so Dirk is just uh, standing there tied to the stake and his bottom half is burning and it won't travel because it's too windy. And so it is a particularly long and excruciating form of execution all because he was willing to save the person that was trying to put him to death. And I remember sitting in Dr. Jolovic's class, and I remember him saying this, I was so locked in, he was a magnanimous storyteller, and I remember being so locked in, and I, I uh, slammed my hand on the desk, I was like, that's ridiculous. And he looked at me, I'll never forget it, for the rest of my life, Dr. J looked at me in the eyes, he said, that is you with Jesus. We were 
alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were separated. And Jesus says, uh, hey, I'm going to come offer myself on your behalf. And we respond so often with not uh, joy and adoration, but we respond in the same so often with uh, contempt and scorn and sin. Eugene Peterson says, uh, and I'm trying to remember this week what book he said it's in, but uh, Eugene, Eugene Peterson says often that the gospel is meant to be lived the gospel is meant to be lived. I think so often we, uh, in our evangelical context, uh, put gospel in the category of mental assent, meaning uh, what are the things that I can believe, what are the things that I can think in order to put myself in right standing with God. And sure, that's a component of it, but the gospel is so much bigger than that. It affects every area of our lives. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what empowers us to, even though we're being pursued, to see a human life that is in need and go, I know this isn't going to work out well for me, I'm going to rescue them anyways. This is the gospel being lived out through our lives. So let's turn a corner, bring that over to our text for today, because the last chunk of Colossians is a little bit difficult to preach from, if I'm being totally honest. It's super contextual. It's Paul saying hellos and thank yous and goodbyes and I'll see you soons to a bunch of people. But inside of there, Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, <coughs> start, start in verse 8. I'm sending uh, Tychicus, okay, letter carrier. I'm sending him uh, to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And then he says in verse 9, he's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. (coughs) So he says two things about this guy named Onesimus. He's a faithful and dear brother to the group, and he is one of you. And this is, in the short time we got remaining, uh, I want us to uh, turn over to the book of Philemon and uh, discover and be reminded that the gospel is meant to be lived and the good news of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus transforms absolutely everything, including our gospel witness for a dying and hurting world. So a couple quick uh, things about the book of Philemon. It's the shortest of Paul's letters found in the New Testament, and it's written to this really specific situation happening inside uh, the church of Colossae, the people that we've been uh, reading to. And and, uh, it's addressed to Philemon, and Philemon was a leader inside the Colossian church. Um, It it even says um, at one point that the church meets inside of his home, so he's well-to-do. He's the patriarch or the paterfamilia of the family, like we talked about several weeks ago. Um, He's the one that that Paul was saying, hey, the gospel of Jesus transforms the entirety of your life. And at some point, because he's the patriarch of the family, at some point uh, there was a dispute that arose between him and and between uh, one of his household servants named Onesimus that we just read about in the book of Colossians. 
Now, it doesn't say what the dispute is. It doesn't say if Onesimus took some of his money. It doesn't say if he just up and ran away. It doesn't say what the situation is. All it says is that Onesimus left, and because of that, there's some contention between Philemon, the patriarch of the household, and Onesimus, the runaway slave. Now, that might seem like a really like heroic story of Onesimus. I'm not here to, to talk about whether it is or isn't. But what I know is that Onesimus, because of his actions, put himself in a situation where there was dire consequences. For a runaway household servant or slave of this day, uh, there's certainly like jail time at stake, maybe even being put to death if the uh, actions are severe enough. (coughs) Um, So this isn't just like two people who parted ways. This is a serious issue at hand that Paul is writing to in the book of Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Because what we see happen is Paul, writing the book of Colossians from jail, Paul gets teamed up somehow with Onesimus. And Onesimus is like, I don't know what to do. I ran away. And Paul begins to explain to him the good news of Jesus. And at some point throughout their interactions... At some point, Onesimus uh, begins to trust in the work of Jesus for the salvation of his sins and his redemption. And Onesimus becomes, uh, uh, becomes a believer in the work of Jesus and becomes a, a Christian, becomes a part of the fellowship. And so Paul is sending him back to Philemon, his, his master. And he's sending them back with this letter saying, since then, this has happened. Here's then what I want you to do. And so um, he's writing to the leader of the church, and just real quickly, it's a really short letter. Uh, in verses four through seven, what we see is Paul reminding Philemon of the partnership, the, the Greek words koinonia, uh, this like mutual edification and love for one another that he's leaning on. And he says, I pray that your partnership with us, reminding like we're on the same team here, Paul and Philemon. Then he goes on to say in the next section, um, hey, because of that, because we're on the same team, because I've got a little bit of authority to speak into your life, uh, because we're working towards the same end goal, I could order you to do something. I could say, hey, you have to do this. But he says, I'm instead uh, reaching out to you on the, the grounds of love. I'm instead saying, hey, because of who Jesus is to us, because we're partnering in the gospel with this, I'm, I'm not going to make you do it. I'm just asking that Christ is going to work in you to, to allow you to want to do it. And then he says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And he begins to use this familial language of son and father. We saw it earlier with brother. We're going to see it later with brother and family. Um, And what he's doing here is laying out a case for why Onesimus should be forgiven and brought back into the fold. That Onesimus is coming back no longer as a slave, no longer as subservient, that because of the work of Jesus that we spent the first six weeks talking about, because Jesus is who he says he is, he's saying, Onesimus is coming back to you now as an equal. Onesimus is coming back to you now as a brother. 
And I am praying that you choose Philemon, master of the house. I'm praying that you choose to welcome him back in as such. And then he goes on to say, if, if to give further uh, credence to the gospel being lived out through every single facet of his life, he goes on to say, if Philemon has, or if Onesimus has wronged you at any point, if he owes you money, if there is a, hear what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters, if there is a debt that he owes that he cannot pay, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. You just let me settle that up on his behalf and you welcome him back into the family, not as a servant, not as a master, but as a brother in Christ. And Paul finishes it off with, I trust that you will do this. I trust that the gospel has taken root in your heart so much so that you are going to allow it to be lived out through how you treat Onesimus, through how you treat this slave that has become distant and I'm now inviting you to bring back in. <clears throat> we talked about several times that the, the Lord, what he's building through the work of Jesus, through who Jesus is, is a new humanity. That it's a humanity that's uh, reverting back to the intention for creation, pre-fall, before sin entered the world. And what that means is that there's not this hierarchical system, but instead there's love and acceptance and forgiveness and reconciliation taking place. And that's what God is building inside of us. And so uh, Paul's saying here, live that out, Philemon. Release him from the debt that he owes you and instead welcome him back in as a member of the family. And I know we just got done with Thanksgiving and I know uh, for some of us, it might, uh, for, to say, uh, welcome him back in his family, it might go, oh, that was a red hot mess, Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know if I want to welcome him in my like, family. But imagine the ideal of what it would look like to live as family. Imagine how good it could be. And that's what Paul's saying Welcome him back, back in his family. And, and so here's the question that it beckons for us today. What in the world does a first century slave and master dispute have to do with us as Jesus followers today? And, and I think it's really simple. I talked about it at the beginning with Dirk Willems. And I, here's the reality of it. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And Jesus, because he changes everything, is building inside of us personally and inside of us corporately a new humanity. He's building inside of us a, a restored creation. He's building inside of us a, a kingdom that reminds the world of his kingdom. He's establishing that inside of us. And so therefore, that new humanity ought to spill over into every single facet of our lives. I talked about Peterson saying the gospel is meant to be lived. We're meant to live out the realities of the gospel. What did Jesus say the gospel was? What was the good news of Jesus? He says in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He is set to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what's the good news of Jesus? What's the gospel that is meant to be lived? One word. 
reconciliation. Bringing what is broken back together. Restoring what is distant back into wholeness and unity and beauty. And as Jesus' new humanity, as us, as Jesus' followers, what he's building inside of us is not grudge keepers and at a distancers, like arms out, no thank you. What he's building inside of us is a people of restoration and reconciliation that we have opportunities every single day through how we interact with our spouses and how we interact with our kids. Uh, He's building inside of us opportunities to reconcile the world unto him. He's doing it. We just get to participate in him with it. And this is what he's saying here to Philemon. Hey, you have an opportunity to live out the gospel. Welcome Onesimus back in. I was reading a Tim Keller book yesterday about forgiveness. And it talks about the difference between like true forgiveness and restoration. And just like, I'm going to excuse what has happened. And what he's telling Philemon here to do with Onesimus is not, I'm just going to excuse or like look over um, this, this thing, but I'm going to hold you at an arm's distance. What he's saying is, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to have someone else, me, Paul, I'm going to have someone else pay the debt that you owe on your behalf, and I'm going to bring you back into full restorative relationship with the community. Which means there's no like inhibitions here. There's no like, oh, I'll let you prove yourself again. That sort of thing. I'll kind of keep you at an arm's distance. Uh, Jesus is inviting us as his followers to be reconcilers. To be reconcilers. So we have an opportunity day in and day out to live out the gospel. Just as Dirk Willems lived out the gospel by saying, I know this might not end well for me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue this guy. Just like uh, Philemon, we don't know what happens, but just like Philemon has the opportunity to go, listen, he, he wronged me, it hurt. He might have stolen from me, I don't know, but I'm going to welcome him back in as a brother, as a part of the same family, in equal standing. We have an opportunity to be reconcilers, Our world is fractured, it is broken, it is splintered, and we can either, as Jesus followers, ignore what he has done inside of us and contribute to the the fracturing, or we can be reconcilers and, and contribute to what God is doing and building in humanity and contributing to the wholeness. So just a few practical steps. Again, as I offer lists, these are never exhaustive. These are just the things I think God might be inviting of us <coughs> today and this week. And so what does it look like for us to be reconcilers? What does it look like for us to live the gospel day in and day out? Number one is how do we treat other Jesus followers? How do we treat other members of the church? And I'm not just talking about Connection Church. I'm talking about the, the universal church. How do we treat them? Is it scorn? Is it shame? Is it arm's length? Or is it full restoration and relationship that God has done for us? 
Another thing that I thought of this week is the expediency of which we forgive. If I can be frank with you, one of the conversations I've had uh, time and time again, um, and I don't, I don't want to uh, make light of it, but I just felt the Spirit press this upon me. Uh, the last time our church went through a pastoral transition, uh, it was under weird circumstances. COVID was weird. And, and as I've talked to people, I've got this lingering sense um, that there's some, some lingering bitterness and contempt and unforgiveness uh, of the Sovines. That it's like, well, you just kind of left us here. You kind of you did that. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you don't owe me anything because Jesus already paid what you owe. So if when I say the Sovines, if you, if you get a little bit like a... Jesus is inviting us into a better way. He paid the debt that anyone could ever owe. There's nothing that we could ever get from a certain person uh, that is going to bring us back into right relationship. God did it. God did it. One time, Amanda and I were at a Mexican restaurant, and uh, someone very kindly, this was over in Columbia City, someone very kindly paid for our meal. Um, but there was some confusion, and, uh, and we got double, like, we, we then got a bill. So we double paid. That's how, we, that's how it is when, when we uh, try and hold someone to a certain standard that God has already forgiven and that God has already taken care of. The debt has been paid so we can be in right relationship with. So we are, we are God's new kingdom, his new humanity that he's, he's making. He's restoring all people. We need to be quick to forgive inside of that. And then the third thing is we get to hold out hope that no one is beyond the grace and the saving power of God. That there's no one too far gone. Philemon could have refused to accept Onesimus back because he could have said, like, do you know what he did to me? Do you know? But no, Paul's saying, no, you're accepting him like a brother like a family. Paul reminds uh, Philemon that the same grace that was at work in Philemon when he first found Jesus is now at work in Onesimus. It's like the parable of the, the unforgiving servant where he goes to the great king and, uh, and he says, hey, you, uh, the king says, hey, you have a debt of like, I think it was like 10,000 Denarii, which is like 10,000 years of uh, labor. And I think I saw, this was in the Keller book, I think I saw uh, an equivalent of like $400 billion. This is, this is seismic and systemic. $400 billion of debt. One person owes it. And the king says, it's forgiven. I've released you from it. The guy obviously celebrates. That's better than winning. The uh, biggest lottery pool I've ever seen on the billboards going to champagne. It's like $2 billion, $400 billion. He celebrates. And what's the first thing he does after his celebration? He goes to someone that owes him like five grand. And he says, hey, uh, I need you, to, need you to pay me back. And the guy's like, I don't, I don't have the money. 
begins to press them a little bit more. No, you, you owe me that $5,000. God just got $400 billion forgiven. You owe me the money. You owe me the money. I don't have it. I don't have it. The king gets wind of this and goes, you just got forgiven $400 billion. You're going to go over here and demand that this guy pays you 5000 So it is with us. When we refuse to be the livers of the gospel, when we, when we refuse to accept people back in, when we refuse to bring them in as brothers and sisters, but instead hold them at a distance, assuming that the God's grace that saved us stops at us. So before I close this in prayer, I just want to carve out a little bit of space for the Spirit to speak to us. Maybe invite us to take some really practical steps this week. Some phone calls, some conversations coffee meetings, fill in the blank, whatever it is. But ask the Spirit, who, who might you have been keeping at an arm's distance because of hurt? And then what might the gospel taking root of that area of your life look like? Spirit, speak to us now. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, forgive us of the times where we have held other people to a debt that you have forgiven. I've tried to make people pay again. So give us the boldness and the courage and the humility to admit uh, when that's happened for us. But then the empowerment and the opportunities this week to go uh, reconcile those people. Help us be the livers of the gospel. Help it take root in our lives as we commit ourselves uh, to your work here on the earth. We love you deeply. And ask all these things in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, that's the book of Colossians. Uh, next week, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, we're preparing our hearts for Advent. Um, it's going to be four weeks. Uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, I think it's a good opportunity. I don't always push for this, but I think it's a really good opportunity to uh, invite people who are asking some hard questions. Uh, we're going to take a look at four different minor prophets and uh, talk about how Jesus arrived on the scene to people who are hurting, who look around at the world and go, this, this stinks. Uh, who are mourning um, the evil that they see around them, uh, the people who are wandering, um, and, and to people who are, uh, who are maybe feeling a little bit marginalized or unseen. So uh, I'll give you that challenge. Like I said, I don't do that often because of what this gathering typically is, but I think it's going to be a good opportunity for us to encounter uh, the arrival of Jesus into our lives in that way. So as you go, I uh, pray that you go in the grace of Jesus, in the love of the Father, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Hope you have a good week.